Welcome to Backstage the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is drummer, author, educator, Daniel Glass. Daniel is one of the most in-demand jazz drummers and educators on the planet. We discuss his upbringing in Honolulu, Hawaii, his college education in New England, the benefits and challenges of life on the road as a musician, and throughout the interview, Daniel gives many tips to aspiring young musicians. I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Enharmonic. Hey Daniel, this is Sean Kennedy. Sean, how are you? Good to hear from you, man. I'm doing great. It's been too long since we've uh, chatted, so I'm really looking forward to this. Absolutely. I'm assuming the weather is as bad in Pennsylvania as it is in New York right now? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty bad. My kids have had off from school the last two days, and I'm really not doing much of anything today except just hanging out and watching some TV. So I'm glad this uh, opportunity presented itself so we can chat. Yes, because we have been trying to get this together for a while, and it was I was wondering if we were ever going to get it together, but, you know, two busy people, so it's uh, in, in, in leading busy lives. But I'm, I'm glad, too, for sure. All right, well, here we go. I usually start off all these interviews with the same question. So my question is, what is your earliest recollection of music as a child? That's a very good question. Um I'm, you know, earliest is a really, that's a really tough one. Earliest recollection of, for example, pop music. I suppose I could, uh, I could say I have several early recollections. Um, one is, I remember distinctly when um, the Beatles song Come Together was number one on American Top 40, which would have been around 1970 or 71. And I was about five years old. And I remember just thinking what an unusual song that was, the beginning and all of it just, it was, it sounded so mysterious and unusual and interesting to me. Um, And it's still one of my favorite Beatles songs. I mean, how do you pick a favorite Beatles song anyway? You know, right. Maybe you pick a favorite era of the Beatles, you know, but within each era, there's just amazing song after amazing song. But um, I suppose that's a very early musical memory. And then I have a lot of, you know, just, I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, which was a pretty unusual place to grow up because of what you were exposed to as a child. So I was exposed to children's music and uh, all the typical kind of things that, that you get exposed to. But then you're exposed to a lot of different cultural stuff as well. So, for example, uh, my dad would take us when we were really little to uh, what was called the Bon Dance, which is a Japanese festival. Um, it's a dance festival. And uh, what they do is in like a big open space, like a parking lot in front of a Japanese temple, they'll build... Um, sort of like a big platform, uh, which is almost like a bandstand. And at the top, they have a, a band playing traditional Japanese music on t- traditional Japanese instruments. And then the dancers form a huge circle around this thing, and they all dance traditional dances. And so my dad used to take us to those. And my mom, um, my mom was was very into uh, cultural things because she herself had been a dancer for many years so we were going to dance concerts and she was also interested in asian culture so 
there were Korean music concerts and of course Hawaiian music was around. So those those kind of musical snippets are in my brain as some of the earliest the sounds that I heard, musical sounds. Wow, the uh, Japanese one uh, stuck out to me. Were they, um, was it like taiko drumming or was it other types of Japanese music? I'm sorry, say again, was it what, what was the first thing you said? Was it taiko drumming? Like, did they incorporate that or was it other types of Japanese instruments? Well, um, they, I mean, what's cool about, you know, Japanese folk music is there's lots of drums and it wasn't Mm -hmm. taiko drumming because taiko drumming focuses specifically on the drums, but there certainly were drums involved with that kind of music. And, um, you know, I've always been attracted to drums, you know, ever since I can remember. Um, so I think there was a natural, I was always listening to the rhythm, the rhythmic aspect of things, you know, and I was definitely Mm -hmm. a, a pots and pans kid, you know, setting up little pots and pans and wailing away. And I guess one of my first attempts at drumming, also Beatles related, of course, um, my parents got uh, the album Let It Be, which came out right around the same time as, as Abbey Road. And I used to, my mom had this wooden stool and I used to sit there and just, I really liked Ringo's drum part on Get Back, this little march thing, you know, chick, 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 chick. So I would sit there and play along and imitate Ringo. Um, so, I don't know. In answer to your question, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, it's, it sounds like uh, you, t- you mentioned your mother was a dancer and your parents obviously had some good taste in music. Um, were either of them musicians uh, at some point in their life? Uh, did they play anything? Well, um, not really. My mom had a, a, a nylon string guitar around the house. Uh, which she had fooled around with. Both, both my parents were very into folk music. They were sort of uh, maybe one generation before the hippies, although their um, way of thinking in the world and part of why they moved to Hawaii and what they got into Hawaii was very sort of forward-thinking stuff in the you know the early 70s. Hawaii was really a, a, an outpost for people wanting to get away, you know, from their whatever they had grown up in and 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 kind of. It, it, you know, if you think California was out, Hawaii was even farther out to sea and, and maybe out in terms of what was going on. But there was a lot of cool stuff right. going on. It was really great to grow up as a kid in that environment. And my parents weren't really hippies. They were old, a little bit older than that generation. And my dad's a psychologist, and they were professionals. And so they weren't, you know, as sort of free in their own lives. But they were definitely into exploring a lot of interesting uh, stuff that was happening in Hawaii at that time. And so I was raised on folk music. They had grown up in a time where, you know, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and the Weavers and um, Bob Dylan, you know, in the in the, the 50s and 60s, that was kind of music that was really important to them. Um, they actually had met at a camp in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a summer camp that was kind of a it was really like a kind of a left left wing type of a camp where, you know, uh, black and white kids both attended. It was very sort of progressive, I guess you could say. And amazingly, uh, the very famous blues musician, Big Bill Brunzi, who was really at the very tail end of his life, was, was uh, he would seasonally work as a cook. You know, here's a guy that today that's like considered one of the great legends of the blues. He was working as a cook at this summer camp uh, because 
you know, blues guys, that's what they had to still do. A lot of them, you know, work day jobs their whole careers. Uh, and so they were exposed to all this really cool blues music. And then when they moved to Hawaii, they got into a lot of really uh, interesting stuff. And um, it, it was really, you know, sometimes I was a little freaked out by it as a kid. Um because it was, you know, kind of nippy-dippy, and my mom belonged to, like, the very first health food store. It wasn't even a store. It was a co-op. And so a bunch of people banded together and put their resources together and kind of rented a space. It was extremely primitive, but it was the very first, you could say, health food store, and you had to be a member in order to shop there. And um, So we, we did a lot of cool stuff, and I remember um, we went to what were called the the creator festivals, which were these big festivals they held on July 4th or on New Year's Day. Uh, I can't remember. I think it, it was either New Year's Day or July 4th. And they were like little mini Woodstocks. And so they would actually hold these huge outdoor concerts in the middle of Diamond Head Crater. And um, I know Jimi Hendrix played at one of those. I'm not sure if I was at that one. Um, but uh, there's a famous Santana and Buddy Miles record that was recorded there. I probably was at that one, you know, and it was like kind of like being at Woodstock a little bit, Hawaii style, you know. Um, so it was there was a lot of cool stuff like that going on in Hawaii, and um, I'm I'm really happy and so lucky that I had a chance to grow up in that kind of an environment because I was exposed to a lot of really cool stuff, and although some of it was a little weird, you know, Indian meditation and yoga, you know, again, my mom belonged to the first yoga studio in Hawaii in 1970-whatever. <laughs> um it was it was it was great, and so I've I've sort of, you know, always grown up with that kind of way of thinking about the world. Although again, me personally, it's not my lifestyle per se, but try to be open-minded about things. Uh, were you an only child? I was not. I, ha- I have a, an older sister, and okay. uh, she she's actually a professional actress uh, and. Oh, wow. um, educator in the Seattle area with her husband and they're they're very involved in theater so even though neither of my parents professionally was an artist my my mom's dance career ended when I was about five because she broke her leg very badly uh, doing a dance so that ended her career as a performer but um, they they have two professional artist children (laughs) something's been going on and um, since you grew up in Hawaii, um, did you do traditional Hawaiian things? Like, can you surf and do all that stuff? Well, what's interesting, everybody always asks me that question because they just assume that if you grew up in Hawaii that, that you uh-huh. surf. But um, I was uh, – that wasn't where my headspace was. Um, first of all, being very Caucasian, <laughs> you know, being an, being Ashkenazic Jew – uh, I, I sunburn really easily, and when, if I'm out in the in the ocean, I you know to get my 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 eyes get all red, and and I'm taking water in my ears, and you know everything. So I just wasn't naturally comfortable. I, I went to the beach and whatever all the time, but I, I wasn't like going to be one of those guys that was in the water all day long all the time. Okay. And once I really got into music, which was probably by the time I was about 11 or 12, I was always in a band. And so I was always at band practice or whatever on the weekends. And that's kind of where my, um, you know, where my head took me. But what's cool about Hawaii is that you're exposed, you know, to a lot of Hawaiian culture. So 
you know, whereas everyone learns their state history in Hawaii, you learn Hawaiian history and you learn all about the Hawaiian monarchy and um, Hawaiian customs and you do a lot of Hawaiian activities in school and you learn Hawaiian language stuff and, uh, you know, you're just exposed to it everywhere. And also Hawaii is really like, it defined the term multicultural before that word was even used because not only do you have Hawaiian culture, but you have Japanese, Chinese, Portuguese, Filipino, Korean, Samoan, Tongan, um, all of these cultures, you know, people have come from all these different places and, and all landed on, on the shores of Hawaii. And so it's just a really rich local culture there. And, you know, Pigeon English, the way that is sort of like the, the patois that people talk there, um, it's just all of it is there and it's all mixed together and, and the food is really unique and different. Anybody who's been to Hawaii, you know, you get a sense that you're in the United States, but it's kind of unlike any other part of the U.S. So it, in that sense, it was really rich culturally. The other thing I think that really helped in terms of music, becoming a musician, is that I was exposed to a lot of different languages and a lot of different sounds. And I think that really made it open my ears up a lot, you know. So when you were 11 or 12, you said you really got into a lot of bands and stuff. Was it garage bands? Were you in a school band formally? Did you take lessons? Like, could you explain that? period of your life and also a lot of times 12 year olds we start thinking about what we're going to do with our career did you have aspirations to be a professional musician from the time you were young well i can't i can't make that claim unfortunately i i mean i think deep down inside i i i always sort of just felt like a musician very naturally it wasn't anything i had to force um my as i mentioned when i was about five or six, my mom broke her leg. And when she was rehabbing, um, you know, she had like a hip length cast on for almost a year, you know, between a hip length cast. And then I guess she went down to like a knee length cast, but it was really bad. So it took her like a year of rehab. And during that time, she wanted to explore other creative outlets. So she started to take drum lessons with the principal percussionist of the Honolulu Symphony. And she would pick me up after school. I'd get out around 2.30 or something, and she'd take me to her drum lesson in the afternoon at the, at the University of Hawaii and uh, where this woman taught lessons. And I immediately wanted to take lessons, and the teacher said, well, I won't take him until he's seven. So when I was seven, I started lessons. And I took snare drum lessons and timpani lessons uh, sort of formally, up until I was 12 or 13 when I got my first drum set. My parents weren't going to just get me a drum set. They were going to make me work for it <laughs> and mm-hmm. make sure that I demonstrated that I was in, you know, truly interested in this. So it was five years before I got a drum set, and um, I took lessons. And um, along the way, of course, I became, you know, my parents had raised me on folk music, and we, we went and saw Bob, uh, John Denver, uh, and uh, speaking of Hal Blaine, you mentioned you interviewed Hal. John, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but when we saw John Denver in 1975, Hal Blaine was playing drums uh, with him on the band, and I was intently yeah. watching the drummer. And, um, you know, we, we saw like a lot of Joan Baez and, you know, Arlo Guthrie and all these kind of people. But when I was about nine, my best, I had a best friend who was 12, and he 
was into much harder rock. And he got me turned on to like Deep Purple, Made in Japan, uh, Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, Aerosmith, you know, all these bands. And I totally fell in love with hard rock. So by the time that I got my first drum set, I was I was really into rock. And um, so the first band I joined, I was in about the sixth, sixth or seventh grade. I started just, you know, playing Purple Haze and that kind of stuff. And very quickly, I got better because, like I said, it just felt very natural. I didn't really have to work too hard. I took uh, drum set lessons in the ninth grade for about a year. And interestingly, the guy that I took the lessons with I ended up writing about him. It turns out he was a very famous drummer in the history and evolution of what we call exotica music. And that's a whole other story. And he's still alive today. He's about 85, 86 years old. Um, And I see him every now and again when I go back to Hawaii to visit the folks. But um, at the time, I just wanted to play rock. And he was wanting to teach me jazz and swing. And it's even more ironic because I quit the lessons uh, after a year so I could just go play rock because that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I'd been studying lessons with all these classical people and jazz people. And now, of course, here I am. I'm a jazz and, and swing drummer. You know, I mean, I certainly play rock. But... <laughs> and it's it's kind, of, it's kind of funny. But anyway, so by the time I got my first drum set, I guess I was in the seventh grade, I was ready to go. And um, I, I had one band for about a year which were guys from my, my, my grade. And within a very short period of time, I sort of graduated up to, um, when I was in the eighth grade, I joined a band of all ninth graders. So, and that band was a Black Sabbath cover band. I mean, we didn't, there, the term tribute band really didn't exist in 1978 or nine, which is when this was. Um, we just played a ton of Black Sabbath tunes, which I thought was the coolest thing ever, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And so being that I was playing with ninth graders, I was playing already high school parties and high school talent contests and, um, you know, other stuff like that. And so I kind of got serious about it, I guess, fairly quickly. Um, so, but I still maintained, I, during high school, I did everything. I played in the jazz band. I played in um, marching band. I did all of the Broadway uh, type shows that the school did. I played in the orchestra. I just kind of did it because that's what you do. And that, that was like, well, you're the drummer. Okay, you do this. You know, I didn't really... Mm-hmm. I, I, interestingly, I really did wasn't thinking about it as a career. I, You know, my dad, like I mentioned, was a professional. My mom has three master's degrees. And I just assumed that I was going to be a professional like them. And I sort of, by the time I graduated high school, I... I um, went to college and got my bachelor's degree in psychology. So I thought I was going to follow in my father's footsteps. Um, But interestingly, the first semester I got to college, I joined, well, I started a band that was a Pink Floyd tribute band. (laughs) Because by that time I was very into prog rock. And so my entire high school or college, four years I was in college getting my degree, I was playing in this sort of Pink Floyd tribute band, but we also did a lot of other things. We wrote a lot of original music and played other styles. Um, and when I graduated from college, I was really burnt on academia. I had done well in school, but I just wasn't, I just really didn't want to continue, and I wasn't really very interested in psychology. 
even though I had completed the four-year bachelor's degree. So that's really when the pivotal moment came because I started studying privately again. It had been eight years since, you know, I was a freshman in high school. I started studying privately with this guy in Boston named Bob, Bob Gulati, who is now, a, he, he had gone to Berkeley at the same time that Steve Smith was there. He'd studied under Alan Dawson. Um, he's an amazing jazz drummer and educator. And um, after five months of studying with him in the summer of 1988, I guess it would have been, I knew I was going to be a professional musician. And after that, that's when I like really jumped in. And, um, you know, I, I, I went, in 91, I went to the Dick Grove School of Music. I moved to Los Angeles. It took me a couple of years to kind of, I spent a year traveling and I spent a year um, just shedding and living it back at home and working at a TGI Fridays, 80 hours a week and uh, teaching and starting to gig and just woodshedding my brains out so that when I moved to LA in 91, I, I was able to, I had paid for school myself the whole thing up front i had enough money to buy a car and to live on for a year and um and that's kind of how that goes a lot of the people that i've spoken to in these interviews some of them weren't 100 percent sure that music was going to work out for them many of them have mentioned like an aha moment like some a gig happened or a venue or someone called you and you're like i've made the right decision did you ever have one of those moments well, not really. I mean, uh, I don't know. Certainly there was total uncertainty. And I think my parents, as much as they were supportive, were kind of like, really? You know, is this what, okay, if that's what you really want to do. So they were sort of ambivalent, even though they were supportive. They weren't like, right. yes, this is great, and you should do this, and, you know, not, none of that. They weren't they weren't putting me down either, but um, it was definitely a, a hard right turn I had taken from the trajectory I'd been on before. Um, I think for me, when I spent five months studying with Bob Galati, I you know I, I started doing the things that a professional musician does or a professional student who wants to be a professional does, which is I began to practice four or five hours at a time. I began to hear music differently. I began to seek out other professional connections and try to understand more about the world of the professional musician. And I think my passion, I, you know, I'm a passionate person and I, I had never felt so much excitement and passion about anything in my life as I did, you know, that, that five months, you could say maybe was a giant aha moment. It's like when I went into it, it was like, well, I'm feeling kind of burned out and I'm going to be around, around Boston this summer. And I've seen this guy, Bob Galati play and he's really cool. So, you know, maybe I'll take a couple of lessons with him. And five months later, I was like, this is it. I don't want to do anything else in my life. So I've got to figure out how I can set things up so I can make this happen. So maybe that was, you could say that was my aha moment. But certainly, once those five months were up, I kind of felt like there was no turning back and I was going to make this happen no matter what. And, you know, it's as you know, it's incredibly tough, especially at the outset. And I, I you know, 
the first couple of years was like, okay, I'm going to go to school. And then I spent a year in school. And so that was all good because it was organized and, you know, structured to some degree. But after that, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty. And it was a very uh, rough couple of years just getting my feet wet in L.A. and trying to make things happen, you know, trying to figure. And, and so there's a lot of self-doubt at that point because you're just a young guy with a lot of excitement, but not no, nobody's really interested in what you have to offer. Or, you know, people are, but you're not making a living or a good living off it per se. And is it was it college that brought you to the uh, contiguous 48, or was it uh, just a study with him in Boston? Uh, what was the transition from Hawaii to New York and L.A.? Well, I went to college in Boston, and okay. I that was really my first time away from home. I had traveled and, you know, uh, my family had lived one year in California and I'd spent, I'd been to the East coast once, but, um, living in, you know, Waltham, Massachusetts, I went to a school called Brandeis university. That's kind of, maybe people in the Northeast know about it, but it's not that well known of a college, but it's a great school. And, uh, I, so after four years of Boston winters, you know, in the mid eighties, I was kind of like, I really don't want to live on the East coast. And, uh, I ended up going back to LA because I had an aunt and uncle there and I really liked this school, the Dick Grove school of music. I had looked at a few different music schools, um, as I was headed back to that year in Hawaii, I'd looked at Berkeley and, um, I think the drummers collective in New York. And I looked at Musicians Institute and then this school, the Dick Grove School of Music. And at Dick Grove, there was a lot of really wonderful professionals teaching there. That's what really excited me about the school. The primary reason I wanted to go there was that Steve Houghton was teaching there. And I got mm-hmm. to spend a year under Steve's tutelage, which was fantastic, because he's a great jazz educator. He's a great percussionist. He's a great big band educator. And he ran the big band with a bass, with the head of the bass department, who was a guy named Joel DeBartolo who was uh, Johnny Carson's bass player for the last 18 years of the Carson's Tonight Show. And he had, he had been, he always liked to say he had been hired and fired four times by Buddy Rich, each time getting hired back for more money. So he'd been in the Buddy Rich band. And Emil Richards was my percussion teacher, who's one of the greatest, you know, uh, studio percussion players in the history of Los Angeles, basically. So... You know, and John Ferraro, who had been Larry Carlton's drummer, was the teacher of like the you know the contemporary fusion drumming classes. And Chuck Silverman, who was a you know amazing Latin educator, um, was the, the guy I was studying Latin drum set from. So every teacher in the department was like a heavyweight or a studio cat, and um, I really had a fantastic year there. I wish it was longer, but the programs were only a year long. And Dick Rose himself. Um, I don't know how old you are, but anybody of my generation, I'm 51 now, when when we were in high school, you played songs, you know, Dick Grove charts. And mm-hmm. uh, Dick was a, a major, I don't know if you had that experience. Um, yeah, or I had some of those. Yeah. So, and there's a famous album that Dick Grove had done with Roy Burns playing drums, which is called Big, Bad, and Beautiful. And oh, right. yeah. he was sort of like the, the Gordon Goodwin of his day. So every, you know, high school and college jazz band would play some of the charts out of Big, Bad, and Beautiful. <laughs> and uh, right, especially, you know, 
drum teachers and stuff. I liked LA. I liked the weather. And within about two and a half years after leaving music school, I joined up with Royal Crown Review, which of course set the path for me, um, really set my path in a lot of different ways. And uh, the band is still an entity, but we haven't really gigged much in the last few years. I'm, I'm a, a part owner of the band, and we may at some point put it back together in some form, but um, that that was that really obviously was a, my entry point into really having a, a career and developing who I am and what my brand is about and what what people know me for, which is sort of the history and evolution of our instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just to point out, I'm, <laughs> I I moved back. I moved to New York seven years ago, almost eight years ago now. Um, primarily because I fell in love with a woman that lived here, but also it had been a dream of mine to live in New York, being that I'm into jazz, being that I'm into the history of the, of the instrument and American music. You know, New York is really ground central for all that stuff. And there's, there is so much going on here. It's a very obviously difficult place to live, not only because of the weather, but because it's expensive and it's extremely competitive. And, you know, all, all those things you hear about New York are absolutely true, but it really is unlike any other city in the world. And after eight years of being here, you know, I, I, I owned a house in LA. I just sold this uh, in 2017, bought a place out here. And so I, I sort of, it took me a while to make the transition. I was kind of back and forth between the coasts for the first few years, but now I'm pretty solidly based here in New York. And although I sit here now and it's nine degrees outside, part of me wonders <laughs> why I left LA. But at the same time, I felt like it was, a good season, you know, Zorro, uh, you know, the, the, the great funk drummer Zorro, who's one of my mentors, who we wrote, you know, we worked, we wrote a book together and he, he was really an influential figure on me um, in my evolution as, as a brand, as, as it were, um, in defining myself in the, in the drumming community. Uh, he always says that, you know, there's different seasons in life for different things to happen. And I felt like, it was the season for me to to move to make to make a change in my life and it's been great like i i married that woman and we're happily married and uh, things are going great in new york and you know nothing is nothing is ever without its difficulties but overall i'm i'm happy that i i'm back here so it's been an interesting journey from hawaii to boston to la to new york <laughs> indeed um, you mentioned Zaro, and that is a great segue into my next question. Besides your great drumming and numerous recordings and live performances all over the place, you also are well-established in the publishing world as an author of books and uh, materials for educators and music fans alike. How did that come about? How did you get from the drum stool to becoming an author of books and publications? Um, good, good question. Uh, it, essentially, for me, it was a... Um, it was a kind of a natural progression because I, you know, having, I had gone to a lot of high powered schools coming up and, you know, Brandeis university in Hawaii, I went to a school that's called Punahou, which is the same school that Barack Obama went to and uh, Steve Case who founded AOL and uh, a lot of really, it's a really amazing school. I was very fortunate to be able to go there. So I had like a lot of academic, training. And when I joined Royal Crown Review, it was 
a very different mentality. When you're a professional musician, although people are very advanced at what they do, they're extremely tunnel vision, and it's all about, you know, you're writing music and performing music and making albums and running your business and touring. And um, obviously I embraced all of that. But after a bunch of years, um, I was sort of wanting more. And I looked, I, I was always collecting, you know, books and DVDs and staying up to date on things and just, you know, just being a student of the, of the instrument and of the craft. And I read Zorro's book. I think it came out about 1998. So at that point, I had been in Royal Crown Review for about four or five years. And I, I was really inspired by his book because he was, he was able to take a subject like, you know, funk and R&B and soul music and package it up in a way that just made it totally entertaining, interesting, fun, and really made you want to get into it and play it. And his style of writing was not academic. It was very lively and engaging and positive and motivational. And I just loved everything about that book. And I was like, I want to write something like this because what I had found in my desire to, to gather materials is that the music that I was playing with Royal Crown Review, which was, you know, early jazz and 1930s swing and some bebop stuff and some 50s big band type stuff and 60s, you know, early rock and roll and rockabilly and rhythm and blues, all these different styles, there, was, there were no materials out there for drummers. So I was trying to educate myself. And I maybe found some historical books. I started reading those, and I really got into biographies. So I was reading a lot of music biographies. You know, and, and at that time, when we would tour, we would be uh, in, like, you know, RVs uh, or vans in those early years. And then even when we graduated to tour buses, it was still somewhat primitive. You know, you had to have cassette tapes, VHS tapes. So it wasn't, you didn't have satellite on the buses. So it wasn't like today where when you're touring, you know, you've got all of the comforts of cable television and HBO and DVD players and everything else mm -hmm. at, your, at your disposal. So I read a tremendous amount on those tours. I was an avid reader. And it was sort of also a way to escape the grind of touring life because Royal Crown Review was really, um, you know, we would do tours where like we did 23 one-nighters in a row. Um, and that would be part of 50 shows in 60 days crisscrossing the country in an RV. You know, seven guys or eight guys in an RV meant for five people. So you can imagine. And, you know, we would drive after the gig. And so, you know, there's not sleeping quarters in one of those things for, for seven. So it was, you know, you're sleeping on chairs. And it was just really... <laughs> There's no way I could do it now. But when you're, you know, 25, <laughs> hell yeah, you're right. all about it. So, um, but it was tough. So I, I, I escaped into books. And I should mention also my somewhat hippie parents refused to buy a television when I was a kid. So we never had TV. And I was a voracious reader as a result of that, which I'm very grateful to my parents, even though I was kind of pissed off at them at the time. But uh, all of that knowledge that I had been gathering you know, I felt like I wanted to contribute. And as difficult as writing is, and, you know, you, you know as an academic or a writer or a blogger or yourself or whatever, 
that to sit there with a blank sheet of paper in front of you or a blank computer screen and create something out of nothing is, is very daunting. And it's just like writing a song or playing a solo, you know, as a, as a musician or whatever. It's, it's a, it's, it's a skill set that requires work and effort and takes time and is a challenge. And I was up to the challenge. So I, I started, um, actually the thing that really got me into it was that I, um, I pitched a four part series to modern drummer that I called Swinging in a Modern Age. And I sort of described what it was like to play this retro swing style. And um, I did that when this was back when Bill Miller was still the editor. Uh, and from there, uh, I actually met Zorro. I was introduced to him at a NAMM show around in the year 2000, 99, 2000. He really loved what I was about and believed in my vision. And he was editing a magazine at the time that was called Stick It. I don't know if you recall that magazine. Um, it sort of was similar, I think, to like Drumhead today in that it came with a CD with mm -hmm, music right. from all the different um, artists or drummers that were featured. And so I began to write these articles for Zorro. And at the same time, I began to seek out the drummers that had played on a lot of this music that we were playing in Royal Crown View or that we were inspired by. So I sought out Louis Belson and I sought out... Um, Earl Palmer, and I sought out the drummers uh, who had, you know, I went down to <clears throat> Nashville and Memphis and interviewed all the guys that had played on the Jerry Lee Lewis records and Johnny Cash records and Elvis records. So I interviewed DJ Fontana, J.M. Ben Eaton, and W.S. Mm. Holland, and Buddy Harmon, you know, who had basically created the style of, of country drumming, you know, that was popular in the 50s and 60s. He was the pioneer. And I met and interviewed in L.A., you know, I, I knew guys that were into all these different scenes. So I met Lloyd Nibbs, who uh, was the guy that created ska drumming, which all of reggae evolved out of. And um, I, I then, when I would be on the road, I would call guys up. So I interviewed, you know, guys in New York City. I interviewed guys in, in Texas. I interviewed guys in Florida. Uh, I interviewed Panama Francis, uh, you know, who had, was part of that big band generation. He played with Cab Calloway and um, I interviewed Don Lamont who was, you know, legendary swing drummer of that period who was with Woody Herman and uh, is the drummer, was one of the great studio guys in the 50s. Um, I interviewed drummer who had played with, with Bill Haley, drummers who had played with Louis Prima. Um, you know, all of these sort of styles again that, that I felt First of all, these drummers were incredibly influential. They'd played on many of the most famous recordings imaginable, but many of them, their, their story had never been told. No one had ever documented what they, were, um, what they were doing, not only their stories, but what they literally were playing or the gear they were using. Those, those are the things that interested me because I, as a, as a drummer in Royal Crown Review, was confronted with how am I going to make this stuff sound authentic? You know, and at the same time, of course, I began collecting vintage drums because we were on the road all the time, and we the, everybody in the band collected vintage everything. So vintage clothes, vintage tie bars, vintage cufflinks, vintage pulp novels, uh, vintage cars, vintage jukeboxes. You know, I mean, we were like, there was, you know, we would stop at so many antique malls along the way, uh, and you know, out in Nebraska, you you could find amazing stuff in the antique malls. So. Um, I just sort of began in my mind putting together this this story 
of the drums that I felt had never been told, which, which was how did the drums evolve? When did the various parts come together? How did these guys use them? And I was really driven to, to you know, once I became friends with these guys, and I would stay at Buddy Harmon's house in Nashville, and I would um, hang out, you know, in, in South Central L.A. with, with this guy, Johnny Kirkwood, who had been Louis, uh, Louis Jordan's drummer. And he came to my house and brought his drums up. And there was a studio in my house and we recorded the shuffles he played with Louis Jordan, you know. And I mean, just that I feel is, uh, is, is, is pretty amazing. Um, so I, I felt like, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience, and I didn't know where all this was going, but I, it became sort of, again, a similar passion that I felt like I needed to document what was happening in, in this whole story of the drum set. And, you know, that would eventually, I, I started writing, I put my first book out in 2003. I began working on the Commandments Project with Zorro around 2001. That book took two years to complete. I'm sorry, eight years to complete. Um, and it was just, it was a a, a real um, another journey, you know, as it as it were. And um, so it, it was cool because being in Royal Crown, kind of, I, I was making a living playing the drums, so that allowed me the opportunity to create a whole nother sort of career trajectory as a researcher and an author. And um, the educator part, I, I refer to myself as Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. I studied with Freddie Gruber for six years. And, uh, and then that was in the 90s, right after I got out of school. So I had, you know, learned all of Freddie's technique stuff. And over time, that has mushroomed into a third career trajectory um, I, you know, teach a lot of uh, private students online on Skype, and I teach very intensive technique stuff. And I've sort of taken things from from Freddie and also from Bruce Becker, who was also a Freddie guy, and conversations with Steve Smith, who also studied with Freddie, and then put all that together with my historical understanding, because to me, when I teach, I don't just teach technical stuff, I try to give the student a big picture about why they're learning the way that they're learning. So they understand the purpose of what is going on, their mission as a student behind the drum set. It's, so it's beyond, you know, this style or that chop or that lick or that independence thing. It's, it's about what are we, you know, what are we really doing behind the drum set? How are we moving? So that's a whole nother uh, point of conversation, but that's a very long-winded answer to your question about the whole history and no, evolution. Great. Uh, All of your um, resources are invaluable, I think, for uh, students. I always recommend them because thank you. You know, you can't that. teach a second line or have a kid play a second line without explaining where it came from, what they're trying to emulate, the history behind it. You, you'll never get the authenticity unless they know the roots of that beat. They can't just play a beat, but mechanically, you know. So. I really love all the yeah. stuff you're doing, so thank you for that. Cool. Uh, it's my pleasure, and I'm, you know, I'm on a mission to try to. I sort of, I'm like a missionary, you know, trying to yeah. get people to realize that, you know, the the biggest thing that's been difficult about 
what I do as a historian is convincing people that it's important for them to, to know this, even if they are a 21st century drummer. You know, so mm-hmm. why is it important for somebody who's into blast beats or somebody who's into Mark Juliana to know about their history and evolution? You know, and um, so, the, you know, it, it's been an interesting journey because not only have I had to create the products, but I've had to create the interest in the products by convincing people that, yeah, you do have a lot of a lot in common with the past, you know, and what you do today is influenced by the past. And by learning more the, about the past and the way that drummers played and what the drum set was all about, you can, you can color what you do on the drums, even if you are a forward-looking drummer, you know. So um, that's part of, uh, you know, you, you may know I have a, a Facebook page, Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator, which has a lot of historic videos and a lot of different kinds of stuff on it. Um, I have about 34,000 followers now or whatever you want to call them, friends or whatever, uh, people that like that page. So we have a very active community there. And the other thing is that I also have a podcast, uh, which often looks at historically related stuff and, um, you know, uh, just shares sort of the world according to Daniel, which I think is an unusual world for a lot of people, but hopefully uh, something different that they might be able to uh, take away some valuable knowledge from that. So it seems like most of your day and life is uh, consumed with music, but um, do you do anything else besides music? Do you have any other interests or hobbies or anything? <laughs> I laugh because um, it's, you know, just running my three-tiered business, Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. I'm, you know, gigging probably 15 to 20 nights of them. I'm teaching probably 50 to 60 hours a month, and I'm always working on uh, creative projects. And then I'm trying to run the business, which means creating the content for the website, recording the podcasts, um, you know, following up all of that stuff. So it doesn't leave me very much time. Um, I would say that my hobby is enjoying life with my wife, you know, mm-hmm. which is relaxing and is a, an escape from my from my crazy life as a small business owner, I suppose you could say. And I, I've just recently gotten back to, I guess you could say fitness. Um, when I first came to New York, I sort of disrupted my, my life uh, patterns, um, which, you know, I was a very avid runner for years in L.A. I went to yoga pretty regularly. And um, when I got out here to New York, just the weather and my location and the amount that I ramped up my my whole uh, day-to-day business really um, got in the way. So in the last year, I've gotten back to – I swim now several times a week, which I really find therapeutic and good for me physically and mentally. And I'm back to doing yoga and that kind of stuff. And I – it's tough, you know. As after 27 years of being a professional drummer and playing the drum set since I was 13, so that's a lot more years. That's almost 40 years now. Um, it really takes a toll, and it beats you up physically. And I'm sure if you're around my age, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. And you know, I used to, I used to hear that 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 uh, phrase, "drumming is a young man's game," when I was younger, and go, "Oh, come on, yeah, sure, whatever." And now that I'm getting older, it's like, holy crap, you know. So it's, uh, 
it's definitely when you when you are a workaholic like I am and you throw yourself a thousand percent into what you do. Um, I don't have children, so my my output, I guess you could say, my creative output, my output as a teacher, I feel like that is the same energy I put towards raising children. You know, that's those are the seeds that I've planted that I'm growing in the world. And uh, there, you know, when you put all of your heart and soul into that, it, it in addition to just the physical, you know, not only of playing the drums, but like carrying cymbals around New York City on your back. Most mm-hmm. people, you know, have simple backpacks and dragging gear on a cart in and out of cabs. And, you know, New York is a very awkward place to to be a drum set player. So, you know, generally the gigs that I do, there are house kits. Um, I don't do that much dragging of drums around. But, uh, you know, for example, if I, if I have a gig outside the city, uh, I have a cousin who lives nearby uh, about 15 blocks away from me, and I borrow his, he has a Honda Element, and he lets me borrow it, and he doesn't use it that much. So I got to walk or take the subway or whatever, 15 blocks, pick up the car, bring it back, double park in front of a fire hydrant, you know, mm-hmm. get all my stuff out of the apartment, roll it out onto the street, load it up. So, you know, and then reverse the whole process when I get back from the gig. And uh, oh yeah, that's a lot, of, a lot of haul. That's not, you know, when I was in L.A., I had a car, I had a garage, I would just pretty much almost leave drums in the car, you know, all the time. And if I needed to change out cymbals or change out whatever, I would, I would do that. But there's a lot more, lot more work uh, in oh, that yeah. regard here in the city. So you know, that's partly why I, I've, I used to actually really be a grinded out in LA in the first decade of the 2000s. Work had with Royal Crown of View was not as full time as it had been. And so I was freelancing, and uh, um, I don't do that much freelancing now, although it's really picked up. You know, after seven, almost eight years in New York, people are, more and more people are getting hip to me, and so I'm working more and more gigs, um, which is great. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I mean, I will always be a gigging drummer. But at the same time, I've been trying to think ahead to the future and sort of say, well, you know, if my body gives out or if I decide I don't want to be on the road, travel as much as I do now, you know, how can I continue to to do it my way, so to speak? And I think playing jazz gigs and I work a lot with uh, cabaret artists. There's a huge cabaret scene in New York and I work with very high-level people in that world. Um, and that's more emotive, quiet, very sensitive playing. Um, and that's different than sort of the slam-bam heavy shuffles and things of Royal Crown of View, which is really much more like a rock a rock gig. So, you know, just trying to always figure out the future and pave the way and, you know, quote-unquote keep it real, meaning am I really living the life that I want to live as a creative person? And, um, you know, that changes again. As Zorro said, it changes with seasons over time. So um, just trying to roll with that and pay attention to my body and all those things. All right. I have two more questions, and then we'll be done. Uh, I was okay. going to ask this early on, but I figured I'd wait to the end. Have you ever met Ringo Starr? No. And uh, no. Wish I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, never had the opportunity to. And there's several questions I would want to ask him. But I've, I've the, the question I want to ask Ringo is, why why did he play match grip 
because, you know, prior to Ringo and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, traditional grip was the default grip. If you went and studied with a drummer or with a, a teacher, a professional teacher, if you, you know, just any drummer pre-Ringo generally learned traditional grip. And post-Ringo, that was such a sea change for drummers um, right. when they played, when the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan show in February 64. And he came out playing matched. And after that, and of course, the aftermath musically that that happened and rock, you know, was already getting louder, but it got a lot louder after that. And the venues grew, so things needed to get even louder. You know, was it, was it, you know, why did he play matched grip? So there's a lot of different theories about it, but I'd like to sort of hear it from the horse's mouth. Right, right. You know, I mean, one theory is just the size of the venues. He had to hit harder, which makes a lot of sense because it's mm -hmm. difficult to get that much volume with traditional. Another reason is that he's a left-handed person playing a right-handed drum set. So being that he was left-handed, um, maybe he felt more comfortable playing match grip than traditional, uh, right. even though he was playing a standard kind of a setup. Um, and uh, another reason is that uh, a very influential drummer of that time in England was a guy named Phil Seaman, who was pretty much Ginger Baker's main influence. And Phil Seaman was a one of the great jazz drummers, but he was also playing Broadway show or West End shows, I guess you could say, their equivalent of Broadway in England. And he was a, unusually a match grip player for that time. And he was very influential on a lot of drummers at that time period. But, you know, a, a lot of the other guys from that era um, and earlier were match grip players. Charlie Watts, you know, for example. Um, although, again, by the time you get to 66, 64, 65, everyone's switching to match. So that would be my biggest question for Ringo, in addition to just saying, how's it going? And, let me, you know, right. happy to meet you. <laughs> and all the other exactly. things you'd want to say to Ringo. So, uh -huh. uh, yeah, I have not. But I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I'm good friends with Greg Bissonette and Greg, you know, tours in Ringo's band. And he, he's very close with Ringo. So I've been able to ask him some of these questions. Okay. And the last question, um, I have a lot of kids that are in college and high school that listen to these things. Um, if you had one or two pieces of advice for these young folks thinking of going into music, what would it be? Well, I have several um, young students also who are working in that direction. And I think the thing that I would say is that I, if this is what you want to do for a living, then get serious as a heart attack right now. When you're 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, as a, as a teenager, you have the luxury of, or at least most teenagers, have the luxury of still living under their parents' roof, and they have the time to put in the practice. So I would say find a really great teacher who's really hip, who knows what's going on, like yourself or me or whatever, and get start acting as if this is your profession now and whether you go to school for drumming or not and i'm you know just i mean a lot of people think that if they go to a good school if they go to berkeley or north texas or usc or indiana or whatever that 
that is going to guarantee them a killer career in music. And as you know, there are plenty of North Texas and Miami and oh, yeah. USC graduates out there that aren't doing shit. Um, so it's great to get a good education. Um, it always cracks me up, though, when I meet musicians on the scene who, like, drop the North Texas thing as if somehow that's, like, you know, automatically makes them a badass or something. And then I play the gig with them, and I'm like, well, yeah, no, you know. <laughs> Not We're on the same gig, pal. Yeah, I mean, or whatever. But it, it, it's, you know, certainly you can parlay that. I think, like, for example, Juilliard here in New York, if you go to Juilliard Manhattan School of Music, that's, that gives you a leg up. But good luck getting into those schools. It's extremely difficult. It's extremely competitive. Mm -hmm. I think schooling is great, but it's what you make of it in the real world that counts. So, okay, two things. So one, get serious as a heart attack right now. And two, learn and understand that you are a business and that it is incumbent on you to get your business chops together as much as it is to get your playing chops together. There are plenty of musicians who aren't the best in their category who are making a very good living. And there are plenty of amazing genius musicians who are starving. So, you know, if you don't care if you make any money or not, then, you know, don't worry about it. But um, especially when you get a little older and life's responsibilities start to kick in, you get married, you have children, you want to buy a house or an apartment, you know, suddenly how you look on paper and how you run yourself as a business uh, becomes increasingly important. And it's a really delicate balance between, um, between, uh, you know, um, sort of how much time we put into our business and how much time we put into our career. And I would say that when you're younger, put your time into your career mostly and slowly work on your business. But that almost has to shift a little. Unless you're at a Vinnie Caliuta space where your phone never stops ringing. But there aren't very many <laughs> musicians out there that just have the endlessly ringing phone uh, where they're making enough or their wife isn't going to kill them because they're always on the road. You know, I spent many years on the road, and I dreamed about being a musician that toured. And after 15 years of that, you kind of go, gosh, you know, I've been to every city in America 10 times. I have, you know, been all over the world, and that's great. And I would like, you know, I just am going to get married again, you know, or whatever. Or I'm, I've got kids at home. I don't want to miss my children's upbringing. So your priorities may change as you get older. And it's, you know, you have to see this as a long game. And I'm sure I'm saying exactly the same thing that every one of your uh, interviewees has said. But in my opinion, that's, that, those are, I guess, the two, the two things that I would say. It's a long game. You got to get serious now because of the competition out there and because people, you know, it's a different world musically in terms of gigs and what gigs are about and how you can make a living off of gigs. So get serious now, you know, and then think of yourself as a business and get serious about yourself as a business as much as you are about yourself as a, as a performer or player. A lot of people today say, oh, it's impossible to get ahead and the business is too competitive. And, you know, a lot of guys complain about the lack of gigs and all this kind of stuff. So remember that at any point in history, it has been 
almost impossible for musicians to make a living. It's no different now than it was back then. People say, well, yeah, but you know, you could teach and you can make a full-time living from teaching, or you could gig and you can make a full-time living from gigging. Maybe to some degree, yes, that was true. But on the other hand, you didn't have the internet. You didn't have Skype teaching. You know, there, it's always been the ones who are resourceful and have a strong sense of business in addition to whatever they bring to the table creatively who succeed at any generation. It isn't that there was some magic thing and it was so easy for us back then. It's making a living as a musician is something you choose to do. And it is a wonderful life, but with that freedom comes tremendous responsibility. And you, you, that's just, that's just how it is. That's how it's, how it's always been. So, you know, to sit around and bemoan it or to think that somehow we have it worse today than it was then, it's just different. And those who are entrepreneurial and resourceful will find a way to make their thing happen, you know? And it's just about, it's that axiom of hard work and doing it every freaking day, year after year, year in, year out, you know? There's no substitute for that. Anybody who's exactly. successful will, will tell you that. And uh, so, in, in any case, I don't want to get too deep into all that, but, um, you know, it's, it's real. It is, it is real as a mofo life today and as, as a musician. And it always has been. You know, our asses are hanging out in the breeze and, you know, it could all come crashing down like a house of cards. And, yeah, there isn't any security, but that's what you want to do. So if that's what you want to do, don't complain about it. Do it. You know, and I love it. Yeah. So in any case, uh, it's been a pleasure, man. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to let, you know, you letting me blab for a good hour or so. Oh, it's and, fun. Uh, always, always a pleasure uh, to talk it, to you. It'll be inspirational yeah. and uh, give people some motivation and some information and education and um, all that jazz. Okay, yeah, like you said, Daniel, it's a pleasure, and I hope this stuff goes far and uh, inspires some young people out there. I know it inspires me when I see your stuff online. And uh, thank you for your time and all of your great efforts to uh, propel uh, drumming forward. Thank you. I really appreciate that, and, and thank you for having me on board. And uh, it's always a pleasure to have a platform in which I can share the things that I'm excited about as a drummer and an author and an educator. All right, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Great, man. Thanks. Take care. To find out the latest about Daniel Glass, please visit the links below this podcast. And thanks for listening.